You are now tuned in to The Mound Visit. Welcome back to The Mound Visit. This is episode two. Apolog- and a little bit. Yeah, apologize for the long hiatus here. Um, we've both been busy hitting the road. Uh, Life, man, let me tell you. <laughs> yep, again, Curious Dugan joined by Stanton Jones. Um, we've what up-, up, gang? We've upgraded our um, arsenal here a little bit. We actually have uh, nice microphones, so if we sound a little better, you're welcome. Uh, Amazon, thank you very much, so... <laughs> Shout out to Bezos, man. In between uh, flying spaceships, he also makes uh, he also helps coordinate uh, affordable mics. So you know, shout out to shout out to Jeffrey Bezos wherever he's at listening to this. Yeah, we need an Am- We should probably do an Amazon segment at one point because they have literally changed like the world and Everything. the consumer. And yeah, I don't even want to touch that right now because I have a lot of thoughts. But Oof. yeah, regardless, um, as much of you all have, we've been battling the heat. But we've also been able to squeeze in some pretty fun activities since we last talked to you all, for lack of a better word. Some work-related. All the activities. Yeah, all of them. So we're going to start off with, I guess, kind of what we've been up to these last couple weeks and some real-life experiences and and updates here. Um, Stanton, you got three pretty interesting ones here on the the book. So lead us off and tell us what you've been doing. It's kind of crazy, actually. because in the time since we last recorded and we last uh, we, we last potted it up, um, I remember seeing a lot of these events that were coming up here on the horizon, but they still felt a little bit distant away. So now it's kind of surreal to have them in my review mirror and to kind of recollect and reflect on, you know, what, what those experiences were. So the first one was I got a chance to go to the 148th, which I found out while I was there. Um, that is the second longest running sporting event in U.S. American sports. I went to the 148th Kentucky Derby, which may be most notable for its incredibly dramatic ending in which the horse Rich Strike, which had at the beginning once at post time, as I that's that's one of the terms that I learned there. Post time. Nice. Post time. Yes. Yes. Uh, had odds of 80 to one. And your boy hit on it <laughs> first horse race and of course threw a little five ski on it and came away came came away in the black so yeah so so uh big dog here had a had a wonderful wonderful kentucky derby hit on a couple of other horses and and a few other like less marquee races but the story behind that is crazy so our sales manager who's from indiana he's big into horse racing he's like right it's something he grew up with he's he grew up right across uh the state line in indiana right across from louisville there and Grew up always going to horse racing, and he comes up to us um, a couple races before the actual Kentucky Derby, and he's like, "Yeah, if you guys got a couple, you know, a couple bucks left, you know, I, I throw like a flyer on Rich Strike." We're like, oh, "Huh? Why?" why? And uh, he's like, "The horse is not very good. It's going to start off in last place, probably like dead last place." Um, but the thing that that horse is, and the reason why it's got such long odds, because one, it, the horse just made it. Like it qualified literally at like the 24th hour um, Friday of qualifying time. One horse had dropped out. So this was the replacement horse. So that was mark number one against it. Then mark number two 
was that the Kentucky Derby, which I've learned, is actually the longest race in all of horse races. So no horse will ever run a longer race than it will the Kentucky Derby. And he was saying how this horse is not very well suited to win this race because it is a closer, of which I've learned that it is exactly what it sounds like. Like when it comes down to the final stretch, there's no other horse that's faster to this. And so when you look at the replay, that's what ended up happening is somehow, some way. And like, I give more kudos to the jockey because he basically took that wild horse and was able to maneuver it in the tight windows. And literally at one point was like just scraping against the railing to find a little smidgen of a hole. And then, yeah, once it had some clear air, that thing took off. And it was one of the more surreal experiences because it was me and my boss, Mick. Um, and there was this one other gentleman that was there with us. And Mick and the other gentleman started like it, it like after like a good 10 seconds after the race finished, it was dead quiet in the grandstand. Like no one was saying a word because they couldn't believe what just what, what had just happened. Wow. And then those two goons started yelling and screaming because they also had hit on it. And then the guy in the box next to us, he started screaming because he realized what happened. And he had the craziest story. He threw down a hundred dollars on Rich Strike because the man's name was Rich. Oh, <laughs> that was a so roller at coaster. That point, literally so like you have basically like us like four idiots that are like screaming at the top of our lungs in this quiet grandstand you know me you've known me for a while and i'm on a high i'm on oh a yeah high. and there's no bringing yeah, it back I was down strolling out of there i was strolling out of there i was already feeling great because like your boy's fit was was a one like shout out to the wifey shout out to you doof like she found an incredible suit from banana republic at the last hour right before i was getting ready to head on the road complimented beautifully with a pair of jays that i got a few months ago and your boy got a lot of compliments so the ego was already on like 20 at this point and now you now you factor in that i just hit on this 81 odds yeah incredible time in in incredible environment like one of top five experiences i've ever had in my life so a couple things one as we continue to pump out these episodes everybody who just listened to this you probably think stanton's like a horse expert now in like all the stuff that he just he just gathered stanton has this gift where he just picks up on these buzzwords and he throws them when play show yes he puts them all together in such an eloquent manner to where he can, he just t- said all that. And it made so much sense, but one when, by three lengths, yeah, see all, it's all that it's perfect. You can put him in any scenario. It's unbelievable. You have such a gift with that. The same thing is with hockey. The same thing is with country music, which we'll get to. Oh, here in a second. I can't wait to get some puck talk, but it's, it's unbelievable. So the horse racing, yes, that's par for the course with you. So kudos to you. You fit right in. Thank you, sir. I'm Thank so- you. Yeah. I, um, Definitely a certified horse expert now. Thoroughbreds only now. Here we go. See, there we go. Perfect. But that aside, outside of the betting and what you were able to accomplish and the whole Rich Strike thing with the guy next to you named Rich, that's incredible. Good for him. I mean, he was, this was his race, obviously, to go to and bet. My question is, so I, I know very little about horse racing, but oddly enough, I went on a tour of Land's End um, horse farm where they do a lot of the breeding. And I know a lot about horse breeding because I went through this all extensive tour of these studding fees and like how much, you know, these bloodlines and things like that and yada, yada, yada. I and think I smell a business opportunity. Oh, a hundred percent. If you got a horse, um, side note at that farm, the cheapest studding fee 
was $35,000 a pop. No pun intended. <laughs> and that was like for a horse oh. that it was like, you know, had no bloodlines, no winning connections, whatever. That aside, my biggest takeaway, years removed from that experience, is the amount of money that goes into horse racing. Obviously, you see it yeah. from the fanfare at the oh, Derby. Yeah. But for you, oh, yeah. going outside of the race, leave the race out of it. The fanfare leading up to the race, the people you saw, the money being thrown around, the billion-dollar mint juleps and all that. Like, what was that like for you as somebody who, like, obviously, we're not going to act like we're freaking millionaires. Like, that's not our vibe. You know? Like, what was that let, like? Let, let me tell you, the pageantry was – and that that's a word that, right, gets thrown around when you're talking right. about, like, the Super Bowl or um, World Series or all these, like, even right now, like, BNBA Finals – no, that's not pageantry. Pageantry is what the Kentucky Derby was. Right <laughs> I mean, just the elegance. I mean, it, it's it's just a really, it's an incredible mystical feeling to be there in the grandstands, to see these thoroughbreds trotting along this historic course. Again, 148 years, 148th time this is run. And like, you're walking around Churchill Downs, they have like plastered along the walls there of all the former winners. And then in special like bold, they have like all the triple crown winners too as well. Um, and then just the air of the Kentucky Derbies and Churchill Downs. Like, and it's funny though, because this is the part two, right? Exactly to your point. There is certainly the, the, the element there of, of money, of wealth, of true, pure opulence like you right. are you, you're just strutting around town you're in you're dressed to the nines like everything is is just screams premium you go into that infield though that's a whole different world so that to me was the most jarring thing there was two big things that for me i, I took away from it that um was something that i had no idea existed one was how big it is like yeah churchill downs is massive like i've been to some nfl stadiums i've been in some mlb parks like you know i i and i thought that I've gone to large venues, large establishments. No, man, Churchill Downs is... It's a cathedral. I think they said that it... Yeah, I think they said like it can fit two, maybe three football fields. I could do the research, but you know that's not what this is all about. No. Inside of the infield of oh Churchill Downs. And I mean, there's a reason why they say this is the longest race that the horses run and why it's like the most taxing on them. That's why... And also, it, it really puts into... It really puts into uh, it, it really puts into perspective, like just how difficult winning a triple crown is. Because that's the thing too; like these races are consecutive or consecutive or, or very nearby between sure. Kentucky Derby, Belmont Stakes, um, and then the Preakness. <coughs> Excuse me. And so you get to that, so you can understand, like, like you literally you start off with a marathon, and then they have to go and run these other two races. So. That part really stuck out. But then the other part, too, and to me is one of the more fascinating human elements, was that I got a chance. So I was there through work with White Claw. We were one of the premier, we were one of the uh, top sponsors um, for the Kentucky Derby and Churchill Downs. And so because of that, we were, I was afforded some incredible access, really awesome opportunities to see all these different areas where on the Friday, which is called the Oaks. Um, which is a whole nother day. Everyone wears pink because it supports breast cancer awareness. It's cool. another, it's a, it's a really cool day. They have races throughout the day. Nice. Um, and it's, and it's a really, really cool environment. But that day we had a chance to go up to what they call millionaires row. Now I didn't get a chance to go into like the exclusive, exclusive area, like, hey, um, yeah. 
where all the like the Tom Brady's, the Trump was there this year, like where those people hang out. But like in the box, literally right next door, that's where we got a chance to go and watch a little bit of the Oaks from. And in there, it's air conditioned. It's, you know, it's just a whole nother air and scene in there. And then those are really honestly where it's funny as you look around. I mean, you got me, the average Joe Schmoes, the fake it till you make it, you know, the people that are kind of walking around that are in there that probably shouldn't be in there. Sure. But then, of course, yeah, you can see the people that are in there with their their rollies, their patacs, you know, they got the butt, the cufflinks, you know, they got all the little fine details <laughs> that you see and you're like, nah, yeah, you got it like that. Yeah. Like you, I don't know what you do. You probably run some like textile, like, like industry down in like Wyoming or something. You're probably, or you run some like massive fast food chain down in New Mexico and out here just living your best, most opulent life out here. So you have that. And then on Saturday, walking into the infield and I only walked in there. I like, I can't like front as if I would like walked all around there and was in there for like a half the day or anything. No, I walked in there for like a good, maybe five minutes took a quick circle around and I was like, nope. Cause my goodness, that is like, I've heard stories of what the infield of the Indy 500 is like. Yeah. I've heard stories of what spring breakdown at Daytona is like. And I can only imagine that it is basically a combination of both of those injected with the finest anabolic steroids one can find. <laughs> it was absolute, it was an absolute party. Oh, in there God. and so i saw that dressed in my nines and i was like yeah you know what i'm gonna go i'm good on go that. hang out with the, with the regular folks so deuces it was like the little meme dude where the dude just like fades into the background yeah. and that was me fading from the infield so yeah so i think the just the stark contrast of all of that was utterly fascinating for me to to be able to experience in real time like it was cool yeah to win some money it was cool to see the horses and and be in an event that i've never been at but yeah just to see the dichotomy of 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 literally from the the wealthiest of the wealthy. Cause when you think of the Kentucky Derby, that's all you really think of. Nah, right. man, there's some homies in there with some, some Dale Earnhardt intimidator t-shirts some jean cutoff shorts and uh-huh. living their best life. That's hilarious. Fascinating. Let me tell you. Yeah. It's like a melting pot. It sounds like, and it's funny too. It's like you said, like the millionaires millionaire row and all that area. It's like the finite details that they all have. It's like, you can tell the, you know, the people that are walking around that don't belong. It's like, they're like the rent cops, right? They got like everything, but the yep. gun. It's like, they got the right yep. uniform on, but they don't have a gun. And it's like when everybody else is going to get in their nice, you know, squad car, they're going back on their Segway. And you're like, yeah, you don't fit in. Yeah. It's like you're, you're a bunch yes. of rent-a-cops walking around. That's funny. Like you man. out here looking like you're the part and like at a quick glance, like, oh yeah, okay. I can see how you fit in. But then, yeah, you just look at, it's, it's right. It's, it's the devil's in the details. You know, you just see a little bit of things. Maybe the shirt's a little bit untucked. You know, right. maybe the hair's a little saggy. Maybe the hat looks a little cheap and you're like, yeah, no. That's fresh man, out the box. That's, there's no, there's yeah. no wear and tear on that. That's brand new. And look, I, I want to make it perfectly clear. I was in that rent a cop situation. Like, yeah, the Jays were fresh, and yeah, the suit from Banana just came out the box. But like, your boy was not was not fitting in with the other millionaires. Like, no. I was just out there faking it till you make it. But like, one day, one day, I'm gonna be like Jersey. I'm gonna get a box at Churchill Downs, and I'm bringing the gang with me. Yeah, hell yeah, gang, gang, let's go. So I was gonna ask you this at the end of the other two things that you've had since we've last recorded, but I'm gonna ask you now because I think it fits right in. And you talk about fitting in, so. Obviously, you just covered the Kentucky Derby. Then you had yep. Vampire, or you had the NASCAR. You had the Luke Combs mm-hmm. Country yep. Fest first, yep. and then you finished off yep. with Vampire Weekend, the Indie Rock yep. uh, All Stars <laughs> Vampire Man, Weekend. Let me tell you, it it's been a wide ranging. Like these are all things too. Like I, I don't know who you know. 
for people that may know me or do not know me, I'll give a little bit of context. None of this is in my realm of what I like or what I do or who I am. Right. And that's my question about fit is that, okay, it's, it's not you. There's all these events. Obviously there's some work relations to it. And obviously you and I have known each other forever. We've been in a bunch of different situations where we are the same as others. We're completely different as others. It's a mix. It's a match. I mean, Kentucky Derby, Vampire Weekend, na- anything NASCAR related. And I mean, just if I can ask this, I mean, you're a black dude from Chicago rolling up to all these things. Like, walk me through that. It, let me put me in your shoes. Like, I want, what does that <laughs> yeah. feel like? Because I wouldn't even feel right as a white guy walking to a Vampire Weekend concert. Right. I'd be like, this, these are, this isn't me. These aren't my people. This is strange. It's out there. Let me. Let me tell you, it's it's one of those, and I think uh, you'll you'll I, I think you'll get this. But uh, for any of uh, my uh, my uh, black brothers and sisters out there that are listening, I think they'll also recognize this too as well. It's the head nod, you know, when you're walking through these <laughs> events and, and, and you see someone. Yeah. Like I'm at Luke Cole in Nashville um, uh, for for again. We were one, White Claw again was one of the sponsors for it, so it's an event that I you know, help coordinate on our end and, and putting together and such and looking around and, you know, it's, and that's the thing too, like a lot of this is work stuff. So I'm just kind of caught up in like making sure like the details are right. Everything's good. We, we've got everything we need. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take, I'll take a quick pause. I'll look around just to kind of survey my environment, survey where I'm at. Cause that's the thing. Like it, I'm always conscious of where, where I'm at and what I'm doing. No, of course. Um, I mean, this goes back to our days at HF, right. And I, that's something that we've talked about extensively, but I'll give a little shout out here on the pod is like, I am eternally grateful for my four years at that crazy ass high school um, because it introduces you. Cause that's what honestly has prepped me for all of these scenarios where like when it comes from horse racing to NASCAR, to country music, to indie alt rock, like, and everything in between things that are completely out of my comfort zone. Like that is what your four years at HF is like, like right. you could be thrown any type of, you know, I mean, this is called mound visit. I mean, you this could be you could get any type of curveball thrown your way at any point in time, and so um, that I think is just has been absolutely invaluable, and that's something that even to this day I still heavily lean on because knowing how to move through those hallways is in almost in a lot of cases exactly like how you need to move through this life. Obviously, right? Some there, there's some different nuances to being an adult. You know, there's a little bit more ramifications for things that, that sure. you do, things that you can get away with in high school. But um, no, I mean it, it's it is fascinating though because whether it's Luke Combs or or and that's the, that's the other part about it too. It's like I also recognize, and I think this is part of um, something I'm always trying to be very cognizant of is that what is not necessarily cool in my wheelhouse and something that I, I can, at least if I can, um, if I can talk about myself a, a little while, well, I feel like a lot of this has been talking about myself. So we got to get to you here in a second. No, this like, is good. I I'm, mean, this is, I'm, I'm interested in this because I went through yeah. the same experience as you did. We've always been on the same yep. page with what yep. HF was and how we grew up mm-hmm. in the real world. But as, mm-hmm. as we get older, like you see, you hit the nail on the head as you become an adult, there's obviously yeah. other ramifications and things out there. And you, you get further and further away from your time at HF and you're yeah. around people who never had an HF experience in their life. And yeah, you're a product of your environment. And it's one of those things yeah. where it's like, you've been able to hang on to that. I'm down here in the South where it leans very, you know, it leans one way predominantly. Yeah. I, I've been able yeah. to hang on to that. And it, it's, 
it's interesting to hear you talk about it, how that's, you can hang on to that and you can use it, whether it's a work event or you're just there as a fan, because I think there's a lot of people out there that they don't because they've never had that experience and they don't know how to, how to move. Like you said, through the halls of their own situation, which is for sure. Huge. and for me, the key point in all of it and, and kind of like to, to, to put the bow on it is that I know that from just through life and a lot of it, like I said, stemming from HF, but again, you know, in college and, and so on and so forth, um, there are people that re- that think that this sh- this shit that I do is really, really cool. Like being at Luke Combs and being able to be at that, like that was a pretty, I came to find out that was a pretty hot ticket down in Nashville that people were like dying to go to and like coworkers and colleagues were like were absolutely ecstatic to be a part of that and to have the opportunity to go um my boss absolutely loves vampire weekend that's like his favorite band and we had a chance to rap about that a little bit and talking about like the memories like some of their early albums brings to him and some of the latest music that he really likes and giving me the backstory on that um and even the kentucky derby right talking about um our sales manager who's like who grew up with horses and absolutely loves everything about the kentucky derby and you know wouldn't miss it for the world and has been a part of them since we've been a primary sponsor so that's one part that i think that i am I, I can relate very well is I can basically take someone's enthusiasm for a subject and I can empathize in a positive way and then allow that to impact me to make that even cooler or understand where, you know, how this impacts them and understand them on that level, if that makes sense. So that's what a lot of this ends up becoming when I'm going through these different scenarios and through these different work events and I'm going through these different like really cool experiences like it's really cool to sit backstage at churches and you know watch you know watch the band rock out or or be front row at Lord Huron you know I'm just out here just name dropping all <laughs> here this stuff. we go but, like <laughs> like it, it's it yeah it's it's really cool like the experience to have that yeah at the same time, like at the same time, I don't know anything about it, but I can look around and see like my boss is out there just like living his best life and jamming out or I like, or I can like pick up on someone who's in the front row, someone who I don't know at all, who's like absolutely over the moon with this experience. And like, this is something they paid their hard earned money for and they're having the time of their life. And to see them like have that moment, have that experience, that to me is like, that's what hits. And I'm yeah. like, all right, that's cool that's what i can relate to because at the end of the day it's about like experiencing joy experiencing happiness and like that's the part that really like keeps my engine going so that's kind of how i internalize a lot of it um especially when i'm kind of looking around and it's a lot of vanilla out in the crowd and not too much chocolate um you know we kind of just lean on hey hey this is what makes them happy this is what brings them joy and in a world right now where it seems more and more a little bit more difficult to find those instances right um when they do happen, I, I tend to really try to latch on and hang on to those pretty heavy because I think that's that's what we need more of. No, 100%, man. Find some joy. I mean, that's – you hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you can find some joy in somebody else's happiness, even if it's not your thing, I mean, I don't mean to inject race into the conversation, but, you know, I'm curious. I was curious about it because it's – I know who you are and I know what we yeah. we've came from, but, you know, yeah, those are three pretty big – events to where it's like okay like you know let's Absolutely. what's that experience like so and you know what they say Absolutely. the old saying is you know buy the ticket take the ride it's like if you're gonna do it do it i mean buy the ticket do and it. see what it's exactly. all about and i mean like you exactly. said it brings somebody else so much joy like it would bring us so much joy to be at augusta national on a sunday to watch yep. the final round or to be at the seventh game of a yep. world series that's their super yep. bowl so no that's cool man that's exactly i was anxious to talk to you about that i think that's 
it's it's good perspective that we need a lot more of in this world i feel like i think we'd all yeah we'd all do ourselves some good if we could get there but that's cool man that's awesome exactly yeah it's 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 a really really cool thing to be able to experience um yeah certainly that aspect of it and luckily like right i've never had and haven't experienced and don't and don't want to experience or anything like negative that comes with it and i think a lot of that is due to like just the happiness and the nature of like what I'm doing and the environments that I'm in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, I also don't want to like completely sugarcoat it. Like there are some instances where I also, I look around, I'm like, yeah, no, this is, you know, I, I am one of you, Sure, <laughs> you know, around. No, I hear you. so there, there is a little bit of a, you know, I know we like, there's, there's the, the term out there in the word, right. Of code switching. Like, yeah, there, there's a little bit of that, you know, to be incognito, but again, that's all just stuff that I've learned through time, learned from HF and learned how to thrive in it. But I think a lot of that code switch kind of then comes into the value of understanding and understanding like what brings these people happiness and trying to uh, overall, like not, not the masses, right? Like I can't understand like how a full crowd feels about this, but like, you know, individually, you know, trying to understand what brings them happiness, what brings them joy and what could bring us you know, us figuratively closer together sure. to understanding one another. Cause there's no other, there's no better tie than, you know, finding what brings someone happiness and being able to, you know, pick into that. And that, that really is where you can make that connection point. Yeah, no doubt. The whole concept of code switching was, was very new to me. I, I guess there was never a label on it, but the show big mouth on Netflix taught me yeah. all about code switching and they yeah. they did it in a funny harmless manner but obviously that's a it's a big i don't want to say it's a tool but it's a big concept that that's the, you know how you navigate the halls but i took away from that obviously it was it was the african american crowd on that show that was breaking down what code switching was but i take away yep. from it too it's like even for myself being a white male in in where i'm at geographically i have to code switch all the time it's like I can't, I can't walk around and, and and wave my Biden flag if somebody's in the middle of conversation yep. and things like that. It's like yep. you know you kind of you go with it and it's you don't necessarily agree with them, but you you dial that back a little bit or dial it up, whatever, and that you blend in and right. you get out of the situation. I mean, it's exactly. it's intriguing. Exactly. I think we all do it subconsciously, a, it, whether we realize it or not. We do. We do, right? I mean, there's even like from from like a minor level, right? Just like in work, like who you are at work, it doesn't necessarily reflect who you are probably like in your day to day, how you talk to your friends and stuff. So yeah, that's a little bit of it. But no, that's a wonderful, wonderful point. And like, that's the part too, that I think is what makes us pretty unique, right? And what we're able to do is being able to navigate, you know, the hallways, navigate, it's, navigate it's, those uh, hallways. Yeah. But also at the same time, in one of the key key points in it, in an authentic way. Like I'm code switching, right. but I'm still me. Exactly. Like I'm still who I am. I'm still staying true. This is just how I'm reacting or how I'm talking to you in whatever circumstance that comes to it. So yeah, there's that to me. Like there's some there's authenticity in how I'm going about it because at the same time, like I, it's almost like a lazy river. Like I'm trying to choose the path of least resistance if it's something that's in, in a negative situation or if it's positive then we can open each other up more then yeah we can allow each other to learn more about each other and to kind of explore that a little bit but yeah no there's a whole there's a whole art and science i feel like behind it i i'm got to imagine there's probably like a whole bunch of books that are out there about it so but um but yeah it's a it's it's, it's a true art and shout out to hf for helping us learn about that but yeah no man let's 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 get into what you've been up to what, what what's what's happening in your world i understand uh you uh you, you you are an ordained minister. 
Yeah, I'm a uh, Dane Minster. Look at that. How about that? Yeah, that's Reverend to you, my friend. I'm Reverend <laughs> Reverend Doogie. Rev Doogie. Yeah, Rev Rev Doogie. Rev Doogie. So yeah, while you were doing all that, I was I was grinding away at some things here at work, doing a little traveling around the state. But the highlight was that I got to officiate um my sister in law, Kylie. Shout out Kylie. And Child Kylie. My Child Chuck D too. and my new brother in law, Chuck D. Um, Chuck D. It was uh, it was an absolute blast. I will say that it was so much fun. Um, what was that process like to get ordained? So I had to go online, and they ask you a bunch of questions. You have to sign up, put all the information out there, this and that. They ask you a whole bunch yeah. of questions about you know what will you be performing, this and that. There's like a different level to it if you want to do anything in like the Hebrew uh religion or something else and i'm like no not right now at least no but shout out to all my jewish brothers and sisters yeah exactly i mean bar mitzvah there's a lot of money flying around i mean i could do a bar mitzvah one day if i got to do the other yeah story for another time but no so i went through with that you you take all this stuff you have to order the paperwork and the most important thing is is they give you this letter of good standing and it's like notarized and there's a stamp on it and whatever and it's it's good standing. yeah it's like for the state you plan to practice in so I had to take that to probate court here in Lexington County, and okay. they ask you a couple more questions. They, they, you know, oddly enough, they ask, um, you know, do you promise and you know, solemnly swear not to marry blood? So like, don't marry anybody who's like brother and sister and things like that. And that's mm, spoke okay. that might be unique to where I am. I don't know. I, I haven't done it in any other state, but that one definitely <laughs> caught me off guard. And, uh, <laughs> the rest of it, it was just pretty straightforward. It was like, you know, here's this and that they give you the stamp yep. of approval. And, um, what that basically did was it gave me the, the go ahead to one actually go through with the ceremony and two on the back end with the marriage license to sign it. I'm, you know, I'm the officiant on there. I can sign it, bring it back. I have my letter of good standing and then they're officially married. So it was, uh. It was surprisingly easy, I guess, but I kind of knew that going in, but I was taken aback at first, maybe with the beginning of the process, but, um, shout out Kylie and Charlie. They had one of the most beautiful weddings I've ever been to. Um, they trusted me and gave me full creative control. So, you know, for, for months now I was working or yeah, I was going through and working on ceremony start to finish what I'm going to say, how does it look this and that. And I mean, Kylie and Charlie, they're as laid back as they come. I love them to death. And they're like, no, go ahead. Like, this is, you got it. We trust you. Just, just do it. And I'm like, well, what do you, what do you vision? And they're like, well, no, and, you know, just, you know, and I'm like, okay, what, what do you want me to do? So they trusted me. They gave me full creative control and, um, it was good. We laughed, we cried. Um, I had that thing down to a T timing and everything. Cool, calm, collected. And then the second I get up there, Chuck is an absolute wet mop of just tears. I mean, he kept Respect. he kept it together so good all day, and I can't blame him. I mean, Kylie looked absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. He's in love. Yeah. It, it hit him. And so I'm the last one to walk down the aisle, right, before mm-hmm. Kylie comes out. So all the guys went out first. I'm last. I got my book. Well, it was like – it was my – leather notebook I use for work with the, you know, the ceremony, this, the whole run of show and all that. And I go to hug Chuck, you know, like 
like all the grooms that came in, dapped him up, got in line, whatever. So I hug him and uh, I go to like, let go of the hug. He's like, no, I need you to stay here a second. And he's just like ugly crying in my shoulder. And I'm like, I'm like, this is good. I'm like, this is, this is awesome. So, you know, I get up there and like, again, like I got it down. I'm cool, calm, collected. And just both of them up there in front of me. And I mean, I know them so well, just with Charlie being my teammate and then him, you know, falling in love and dating and now marrying Kylie and Kylie being my sister-in-law for the last four plus years and watching her grow up. So I'm talking all about all this personal stuff in front of me and I'm like, Oh shit. And I'm like, I can't even get through it then. So I'm like trying not to sob through it. And I'm the only one talking. And you know, it was. Let's say you had a pretty important job of talking. I did. I, I did. And I'm like, I can't lose this. But at the same time, it was like, it was just beautiful, man. It was fun. I mean, I was, I was honored. I said it in my speech and I'll say it again. I mean that I will remember that for a very long time, just with how intertwined um, our relationship is me with with sister-in-law and now Kylie or sorry, now Charlie with officially being my brother-in-law. So it was, uh, it was cool, man. And it was a one big party afterwards. We had a blast. We went out um, downtown Charleston afterwards. Kylie wanted to go out to the bars and she went out in her wedding dress. We ran into another bride. I mean, it it was cool, man. Memorial day weekend. So it was, uh, it was very special and they, um, they were, they were awesome. It was just a great day. So cool experience. That's so awesome. Yeah. And that, that's the thing too. It's like being able to have that someone who had someone officiate their wedding. Um, it is such a really cool and unique experience to have someone, especially when you have such a personal tie to them in that way. Like, right. you know, a lot of, in a lot of cases in the traditional format, which every, you know, that, that certainly works for a lot of people and is a beautiful, beautiful format too as well. But thinking from you in that perspective, like intimately knowing both of them, separately and also like together right because right. like you have your own experiences with chuck and from from your days at dayton playing together and then you have your experiences with kylie from your times with you know with katie and like knowing her and just being around the family like that and now to see them come together right and then to be the person to talk to everyone about that yeah like that's a it was surreal man I bet that's a little overwhelming it was overwhelming i mean i covered some ground too like another layer of it like when charlie was thinking about coming to date and i was his host on his recruiting visit so like wow. you flash back to that and i'm like yeah you would have told me then be yeah. like tap 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 like this dude's gonna marry your future wife's sister i'm gonna be like huh yeah. like i'm getting yeah. married first like hold on let's back up to that and then you know and uh <laughs> So it was cool, man. It was, it was, it was storytelling is what it was, which is, I think something we're both good at is is storytelling. So it was, uh, it was definitely comfortable. I mean, looking back on my own wedding, having the whole thing be in a different language. And then this one, I'm like, there's, you know, there's (laughs) pros and cons to both, but this one was, it was cool. So I was honored. It was, it was awesome. So anybody out there that needs, um, any weddings officiated before 2026 that's when my license expires shoot us an email yeah i gotta go back i mean i gotta get another letter of good oh, standing gotta, yeah you gotta keep that bad boy renewed year in and yeah you never know when you'll be needed on a, in a pinch so that's perfect so now we have two business ideas we're gonna find somehow well i don't know about the horse one because i i ain't got no 35 g's stacked around nah. yet but you know we'll, we'll, we'll keep that one in the back pocket but we may have something with this officiant business. Yeah. So that could be our first official ad here in the podcast is, hey, do you need your wedding officiated? Do you need someone to come <laughs> up with a dynamite story? 
with little to no information about you and your lovely bride slash groom to be? Well, hit up my man, Kyrus Dugan. He is here for you in the rescue in a pinch. Just hit him up here on the <laughs> podcast and he will no doubt about it. Marry you, come up with an awesome, incredibly intimate, probably made up story, but still no doubt about it. We'll leave you laughing, we'll leave you crying, and ultimately leave you satisfied. Shout out to my man, Kyrus, the officiant, a.k.a. Rev Dugan. Let's start the Twitter account right Let's now. Let's do it, man. I'm all in. <laughs> But see, I don't know about this letter of good stand. I wonder if they like look at my stats. I got to keep my stats up. Like, it's, if you, like if you did 12 and like, you know, four or five of them, they ended up going well. Like there's issues in the marriage or whatever. They'd be like, well, <laughs> well hold on. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got, he's got a, a, a wedding, a wedding married percentage of like 75%. Yeah. They're going to send me down. They'd be like, no, you can't do any weddings. Now. You can only do baptisms and like, First communion, no more weddings. You know, you're getting sent down to AAA. You're done. <laughs> oh, but hey, he's 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 ready for any and all. He's ready for weddings, first communions, bar and bat mitzvahs until yeah, until he gets demoted. Yeah, shit. There we go. Life. You can do annulments. Get your notary thing. We can you be can a one stop shop. It could be like the bail bondsman of everything wedding or re- non religious oh, religious God. ceremonies. Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, no, I think we got something here. We got Lord. something magical here. So if, that's if, no, that's awesome, man. I I love that. I love that for you guys. I I've had the privilege to meet Chuck D there on your bachelor party and, and seen him a couple times since, and Kylie as well at your wedding, and just a beautiful, beautiful couple. I've seen the pictures on Instagram. Yeah, they absolutely knocked it out of the park. You ain't looked too bad yourself, but definitely Katie outshine, outshined you. So sorry about you, but hey, that's my that's stick, brother. That's my stick. That's yeah. where I'm most comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Super, uh, just yeah, beautiful. man, it was cool. So all good, all good. Congrats to them, Kylie and Chuck. We love you. Um, Big congrats. Switching gears here a little bit. We'll get into some sports stuff before we go any further. Sports. But puck talk. No, not yet, because I haven't watched any hockey because the Hawks are dead to me after how they handled everything that they were involved with. But oh man, I got some, I got some thoughts on the Avalanche, Avalanche Oilers series. Let me tell you, that was a hell, it was a hell of a series, even though the the Avs swept them. But my man Nathan McKinnon, he's coming for, he's coming for the Lightning right now, and I don't know, man. It's Vasilevsky in, in in goal for the Lightning right now. He's he's been looking pretty unstoppable after a couple games, right? They had to shake the rust off against the Rangers, but they finished them off pretty convincingly. And but I mean, Matt Cannon, he's like a Mack truck, you know. That's kind of my nickname for him, Nathan Mack Truck McKinnon. So I think he's coming. I think he's coming for blood, and we could see a big shifting of the guard. I mean, but that's the thing too. I don't know. Do you see what he's doing right now? Please, we <laughs> haven't seen a three peat in professional sports since the Lakers, and not in hockey since like the. Oilers in like the 80s it's been some time so I don't know it's it's, it's going to be a fascinating series I think we, we got to check it out how many uh minutes of the series will I watch see do you see what he just did he he, he, he <laughs> took names and he took buzzwords he said whoever Mack Truck McKinnon he's coming for I think he's going to he's looking Mack to I, whoever I I, I don't I'm not going to act like I can even do what you just did. It's impressive. I'm not taking it away from you. I'm just alerting people of everything you just did and what you just dropped on us. I, I mean, it's hey man, big puck guy, big big puck guy. Let me tell you, I've been I've been following the Stanley Cup playoffs all all, all season long, man. It's let me tell you, the, I think the most disappointing, and this is my last take, and then we can get onto uh, we can get onto the College World Series because I, I definitely do want to touch on a few things of that, but. 
I gotta say, one of the most disappointing runs of the of the NHL playoffs has to be the Florida Panthers, the Ice Cats. Like came in, made some incredible deals at the deadline, brought in uh, uh, Flyers captain Claude Giroux. Thought that was gonna be the perfect piece to get them. And it was a historic offense. I mean, honestly, they broke a ton of records this year, had a real opportunity to go into this. They got the the matchup they wanted too. They faced the lightning in the second round, finally got the monkey off their back, won a first round playoff series for the first time since the miracle team back in 97 with the, uh, with the, with the, when they first became the ice rats and they got into this series after beating the caps, getting over the OV hump and absolutely got decimated by the lightning and that stout offense that was supposed to be like one of the best offenses not just in all of the nhl but of all time absolutely stoned by Vasilevsky. so yeah i'm looking for the light i think uh what i'm gonna go on a limb in and say i think i'm gonna go lightning in a seven game series gonna be an incredible incredible series i got lightning in seven going for the three p greatest hockey team of all time all time I, I don't even know what to do with the first half of that because I have no way of knowing if any of that was true or not. I mean, again, it all sounded good. It's just it's so put together. And I'm like, I know you're not a hockey person, but you hear these things and you're able to regurgitate them so well. I, let's go to the College World Series before we get stuck on this. Because, I mean, I just, I just, I don't know what just happened about the Florida Panthers. Is Joe Quinville still coaching the Florida Panthers? Is he still down there? Nah, he got it. Nah, he got ousted after the uh, Blackhawk scandal. Yeah, he he was a residual. Uh, okay. He he got he got the residual axe. Nah, my man, my man Joel Quenville, unfortunately, well or fortunately, is out of a job. So gotcha. Okay, there you go. All right, that was talking puck. We didn't have that on our script here, but we somehow managed to squeak it in. Thank you to Stanton for uh, delighting you all with that great regurgitated knowledge of hockey. I will give you I will give you guys updates here on the next. What if this became a hockey podcast? That'd be one of the greatest upsets in the history of upsets. We'll see. We'll we'll see what happens this series. I think we got a potential lane. We'll we'll talk about it more. Uh, we'll let's we'll circle back, deep dive uh <laughs> on that one. We'll just oh lord. All right. The College World Series, something actually uh that we can talk about here with yeah. a little confidence. Yes. Oh, how am I going to recover from this bullshit? I just <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, hey, man, what happened to your Beavers, though? Real talk. You you had them. You you sent us in a text chat. You said you got OSU going all the way, and then boys didn't even make the control. I, I know. Although, that, actually, I got a question for you. Bigger bigger disappointment: Oregon State or Tennessee? Oregon State, in my opinion. Really? Yeah, I really here, why explain. You know how long we we both know how long the college baseball season is, right? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. yep. It is a long season. It is an absolute mm-hmm. gauntlet to run through. Yeah, as as stacked as Tennessee was offensively and on the mound. I mean, the argument all year was, what are they better on? Are they better on the mound or are they better offensively? Because the amount of home runs they hit, the amount of you know th- their bullpen, how deep it was, everything. Down the stretch in the SEC versus down the stretch in the Pac-12. Mm-hmm. Through the SEC tournament, Pac-12 tournament, whatever. Those are long, long, long games, series. They're must-wins. Tennessee had the harder road at the end of the year 
getting to the postseason. No offense to Oregon State because they're not in Omaha, but neither is Tennessee. And no offense to the Pac-12, but Oregon State's in a bubble. They are they're up there by themselves. Like I fully expected them to be to just waltz their way to the College World Series because they're that good on paper. They were never really tested all year long. They were they were stacked through and through. And I'm like, okay, well, they're going to burn through Auburn. Auburn was like the fifth or fourth best team in the SEC. And I mean, mm-hmm. that very well, I, I'm not sure who Oregon State played early on this year. I think maybe Wright State might have been on their schedule even like early on non-conference. But, you know, it, Oregon State runs into that trap, I feel like, to where if they're not as good as everybody thinks they are when they get tested this time of year, they're either out really early or they, or they go all the way. And all those, all those teams up there, Pacific Northwest, they're just, they're in a pocket, you know, I think Stanford's Mm -hmm. that team. I I was wrong. I don't think it was Oregon state. I think Stanford's that team. I think they're good on paper. They're good on TV. They're just good in general. So I would say to me, that's a bigger shock just because don't get me wrong. What Tennessee has been able to do. I mean, they were bottom of the barrel four or five years ago. That to me is the most fascinating thing is the fact that all of a sudden that's a factory. It is. Like, I mean, it's speaking, it's more of a factory than Garrett Vanderbilt. Kirkay, although rest in peace to his UCL and he'll yeah. be back in like a year and a half. Um, but that, that he was the first one that honestly like put Tennessee on my own radar. Cause before then, yeah, I, I had never thought of Tennessee as a, as a SEC powerhouse. And like, that that's the one thing I think to take away from any of it. One, I still think Tennessee is the bigger disappointment because I mean, Notre Dame. I mean, don't get me wrong. Notre Dame. They they had some talent on that team, but like Notre Dame, they were a game away like, last they, year. Though Notre Dame was a they, game away last year, and it didn't happen. Yeah, for but them. that Tennessee team, I to me is that was arrogance. Like, and you know, of course, like what's his face getting uh, tossed in the first game, having to miss it. Although it didn't really look like it it mattered much, right? Because they absolutely destroyed them in the second game. So you would think like all right, third game, this is going to kind of be no contest. Like, whatever, the first game aberration, that's cool. But no, like, Notre Dame came out. They won a tight game, 8-6, to six, and they're going to the College World Series. And I don't know, is this the first time in program history that they're going to Omaha? I'm not too sure about that. Um, No, but I don't think it's the first, but event, it's been like, forever. But that's the whole thing with Tennessee it, with me, was what you just said. They were so cocky and so arrogant, and that tells yeah. me that they didn't know yeah. how to handle it because yeah. it's like – are we this good? If you're that good, you don't need to be doing all that other bullshit on the side. It's like you're second guessing it almost a little bit. And they shouldn't have because they were as advertised. They they were legit through and through. It's a shame. I mean, for them, it's a shame for what they put together because that season's always going to be one that just ended in supers to an ACC opponent that, you know, really wasn't. It was just middle of the pack. You know what I mean? So I'll still go Oregon State because they walk the walk and talk the talk. I feel like they just ran into a buzzsaw. And I think if they were in Omaha, they would still make some noise, but they're not. So that's a moot point. Um, The thing that I wanted to touch on was that Ole Miss. So Ole Miss was one for a majority the middle weeks of the season. And they just absolutely fell apart down the stretch. I mean, they were like – on the outs of even making the SEC tournament to begin with, their coach, who was up for the LSU job last year and was tied to all this stuff, I mean, the scuttlebutt at the end of the year was, well, they're going to can him. Like, he's done. I mean, he, the roster, that talent, all this and that. And it just goes to show you, again, I started this whole thing off by saying how long of a season baseball is. And it's like, okay, they clicked at the beginning. They were clicking in the middle. They they completely shit down their leg at the end of the season. 
And now they got out of their system. They got hot and they're clicking again. And they're in Omaha. I mean, they were the last team in the tournament. They were 64. They, they, sh- I mean, it I'm was, look- it's crazy. I'm looking up and down right now in this bracket and it's only them and the other one, Oklahoma, but Oklahoma at least had 42 wins. Like they both had 22 losses. They were 37 and 22. So that's just, yeah, that's like the definition of like a seesaw season for them to be number one, you know, a, a clear cut number one too as right. well. For a long time. And midway, yeah. And then midway, like just fall, like to then not then to end up with 22 losses. But again, right. Like that. And I don't know what the inside of that clubhouse was like and like how much stress was on it, especially given all the rumors from the coach and whether or not he's going to be here, especially even just probably, it's probably been a chaotic like last year and a half for that entire program. But at the end of the day, if you got the talent and you can figure out a way to, to, to get that talent to come together at the right time. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's, it's inevitable, right? If you're number one at any point in the season, then you're number, you were number one for a reason. And you just need to figure out how to unlock that again. And, Kudos to them. They did that. But, yeah, as I look in this bracket, man, there's a couple ones that are a little bit outliers. Like, you know, they, Auburn's a pretty good program, you know, too, as well. But I see a lot. Notre Dame sticks out quite a bit. But I look at this. you got Texas A&M. you got Oklahoma. you got Texas. you got Stanford, Arkansas. I mean, you got some really absolute quality top-notch programs that are going to be in this college world series this year. Some like big marquee names and the big, to me, the biggest one that I think I said out of all of them, aside from Ole Miss that I think has a pretty pristine reputation, but it's Texas. And you got to imagine like that's like, if they somehow can, can run the gambit. Right. And after, especially coming off such an emotional series like that, that was the one very rarely. I mean, you'll get your highlights on sports center, right. Of yeah. College baseball, college baseball action, especially when you get to regionals and supers, like, you know, they'll, they'll pepper, they'll pepper ESPN, they'll pepper Twitter, they'll pepper Instagram here and there. No, that ECU Texas series. I mean, that was everywhere. And for good reason, because that was chaos. Yeah, it was. ECU is a, uh, how do I put this? It is on an island all by itself in terms of that mm-hmm. environment. Um, played them in football last year. They called themselves, you know, the jungle. Their mascot is a pirate. I mean, it is rowdy. It is, there's nothing to do in Greenville, North Carolina, but ECU related stuff. And they're good. I mean, they gave Vanderbilt a run for their money last year in the Supers. Um, they were knocking on the door again, giving Texas a run for their money this year. Um, you know, shout out to them. That was, you know, coach Cliff up there. He's been tied to all these jobs and he's, he sticks it out because he knows what he's got, which is really good to see. And I mean, looking at the bracket and something you touched on, like, okay, Tennessee was the end of season. Number one, they're not in it. Texas was one for a really long time. Arkansas was Mm -hmm. one. Ole Miss was one. Mm -hmm. Arkansas and Ole Miss sputtered a little bit. They figured it out. They're in here. Texas was number one. They came to town here. We took two out of three from them. They kind of are up and down a little bit after that. They were battle-tested, though. I mean, they played an SEC opponent mid-year. They kind of knew what they had. I mean, that's you know that's really impressive to me. And um, you look at the rest of it, you got A&M in there. To me, that's a bit of a sleeper. They were consistent start to finish, wire to wire, in the mid-teens to you know top 10 baseball-wise. Oklahoma's your outlier, Auburn's your outlier. But the one, again, and they fit my Oregon State analogy a little bit, is Stanford because Mm -hmm. you don't see them 
they they're limited to who they play out there travel wise. On top of it, it's basically an Ivy League school. They're not going to pay money yeah. to take their spring break trip and come down to Florida and play Florida State, Florida, right. and whoever else they can. So, I to me, I if I'm looking at it right now, I wouldn't bet against Texas A&M or Stanford because mm-hmm. Texas A&M has been the most consistent to me, and Stanford mm-hmm. is like the anomaly where you're like, well, okay. what are you going to get? But but shout out the SEC because half the teams are SEC teams. And then you got your other two people crashing the dance. You got Texas and Oklahoma. The rich get richer. I mean, it's, it's every sport rich. now. Yeah. But yeah. before we get in a couple of years. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just, uh, just stamping that point that SEC in a couple of years, man, with yeah. adding those two programs now. <sighs> I know it's crazy. It's crazy. But bef- Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee. Oh my God, Vanderbilt still. LSU. Like where's LSU? Right. Like how does like oh cheap? Yeah, they're just taking a break. Be- All these schools that aren't in it, they're usually they're just taking a break. It'll be their turn here they're soon. Just taking a break. <laughs> yeah. Before we punt over to NBA Finals, I do want to say the coolest thing that I've seen watching these games. I don't know how much you got to watch of the regionals and supers because you were vampire weekending and memorizing hockey podcast lingo and stuff. But the coolest thing that I got to see <laughs> was um, in the in the regional, Oregon State hosted, obviously, and. Um, for others out there, I watch more than just Oregon State. I just happen to like them. I had a hat when I was a kid with the beaver on it. They just so happen to be good. But late at night, Shout out to beavers. yeah, post work and stuff. You know, it's like the in football season. You watch all the Pac-12 and Mountain West games because they're on at like eleven o'clock at night. But regardless, uh, New Mexico State, um, they got in the Oregon State regional, and New Mexico State. Historically, they always lead the nation in batting average, home runs, all these crazy stats because it's out there in the middle of New Mexico in Mm -hmm. the freaking desert. They play in a phone booth Mm -hmm. and the wind always howls out and they're this like potent offense that everybody's always like, oh, yeah, they're not whatever. That's just where they play this and that. But they played as a four seed against Oregon State, who was the one. And they had a dude, his name was uh, Ian Mejia, and he was an Arizona transfer. He was a pitcher at Arizona, didn't get mm-hmm. to play, transferred to New Mexico State. And that dude carved Oregon State for seven and two-thirds innings. He threw 134 pitches, and oh. he, he came out of the game. And it was oh. like it was like a two to one game. Oregon State was winning. He struck out 10 guys, and Oregon State gave him like this huge standing ovation. And I was like, I look back on my time, like playing in a regional as Dayton playing at Texas A&M, where it was like the whole new world. And I can imagine mm-hmm. for a New Mexico state going up to Oregon state and to see that kid mm-hmm. just like pitch close to the game of his life and car, even though they lost and get a standing ovation from all those like baseball diehards. I was like, man, like that is what makes college yeah. baseball so freaking cool. Yeah. It what makes me yeah. so mad about the MLB but I'm happy the MLB went through they went through what they did with the lockout and the pandemic season because it opened the door mm-hmm. for people to get so interested in college baseball to where the, in the product right now. I mean, we we text with we you know you and I and with Tyler and Nick and whoever else about 
the dudes that these schools are running out of their bullpens, the guys that are in the batter's box, like the Tim Elko kid on Ole Miss, he hit like yeah. 13 home runs last year after he tore his ACL. This year, yeah. he's like fully, I mean, it's 100 miles an hour from all these arms, and you're just like, college baseball's product is elite, and it has those moments like this that are, you can't replace them or recreate them. It is absolutely unbelievable. Because, like, I thought the talent when we were playing in college was pretty damn good. Like, I remember going up to Oregon State, playing Michael, you know, pitching against Michael Conforto and thinking, and he was a freshman at the time, but just seeing, like, oh, yeah, no, that's that that makes sense. Like, looking at the scouting report, seeing his batting average, and then seeing the year and being, like, a freshman, and then right. yeah, you, you, you step into the box and you see his approach, and you're like, ah, okay, yeah, no, it makes sense. It's 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 different coming off his bat. So, like, yeah, you see a couple of those guys and, 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 and get a – get understanding but like now it seems like there's like a bunch of them out there there's a bunch of michael confortos and the craziest part about all this a lot of those guys ain't gonna make it <laughs> like they're not you're out here throwing you're out here throwing like 93 to 95 which is incredibly hard like stupid great movement you 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 know especially the technology right like trackman data all the stuff that they the rap cities like all the stuff that they have at their at their disposal to be able to get themselves and to make themselves better and more effective right at least from the pitching standpoint um is certainly not to be ignored but like still at the same token i mean it, it's 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 just wild just to think like i remember just thinking when i was in college like if i can just like be throw a consistent 90 to 92 I can probably get a shot to get drafted because I'm, th- th- I'm left-handed. I throw left-handed and you know, that can at least give me an opportunity to get to that next level and see what happens and roll the dice and, you know, see what happens. I wouldn't have a shot <laughs> like not in, like no. anywhere near that because even as a lefty, you gotta be at least minimum 95 to get at least a little bit of a look. And the craziest part about all this too, is like even now trickling down to the high school level, I was just reading a story on ESPN um, yesterday by one of the top prep pitching prospects, he shut it down. He yeah. threw like two or three games here during the season, and he shut it down because he was like, for what? Like I, like, I understand what my value, what my worth is. You guys have enough data. And, like, the part that really stuck out to me more than anything was that he was like, what do I need games for? Like, now you, now we have all this technology so you can see the spin rate on my fastball, on my breaking pitches. Like, and you can then – that can directly translate because at that point, right, like if I'm throwing a fastball that's got 3,000 RPMs on it, like 3,000 is 3,000. Like it don't right, matter if exactly. you, you know, if you're throwing that in high school, or you're throwing that in college, if you're throwing that in pro, like that's what it is. Like we can figure out, like at that point, it just becomes about pitch selection and understanding like your stuff and where to place it. But if you've got the pure raw stuff that we can now actually measure, you know, like, yeah, what, what, what am I doing this for? So it's just, it's wild just to think of how much this is all changing and evolving, like literally right before our eyes. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, it's, if, if, I think the the only thing I would say that you left out was, can you repeat that? Can you continuously mm-hmm. repeat that fastball with 3,000 RPMs? Yeah. Because, and, yeah. and the only reason I say that's important is because the part we're not talking about, we're talking about college baseball, obviously. But, okay, say that high school kid, they put him in rookie ball, okay? Yeah. He's throwing 98 miles an hour. His fastball, his spin rate on his curveball is – plus plus you know whatever it translates so he is where he is okay well there's some 17 year old kid from venezuela also there in rookie ball Mm -hmm. who may be throwing four miles an hour harder but he can't repeat it 
So he's probably going to be there for a right. while because he doesn't know where it's going. So if you have the composure right. and you can repeat it, and it's it's a it's a repeatable thing that you can do over and over again, of course, mm-hmm. you're going to have the edge on that. But mm-hmm. that's the shift because it used to be the other way around. You know, I remember mm-hmm. this was 2012 when my roommate, when Mike Hosschild, my roommate at Dayton, shout out Hosscat, when he got drafted, he went to rookie Hoss ball Hosscat. and um, he was down in, in Greenville, Tennessee. So it was like a six, seven hour drive for us from Dayton. So we went to go watch him pitch. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, Mike was a low to mid 90s guy, but he threw strikes. And mm-hmm. at the time, it was so repeatable. And he was, he was polished. Obviously, he was in rookie ball for like three weeks. The season ends. He goes short right. A, whatever. But everybody after him that came in there, I mean, it was literally like a 16, 17-year-old kid from the Dominican. And he was throwing like 102. But one would hit the backstop. One would be in the dirt in front of him here, there, everywhere, right? But today, I feel like it's flipped. Because the, they will yeah. look at the college arm that throws 100 or the Dominican kid yeah. that throws 100, figure out what they need to do to make it repeatable, and then – no offense to Mike, he just retired, by the way, 10 years of playing minor league in, in pro ball, which is unbelievable accomplishment, you know, what he was able to do. But at that... 10 years, man. It, he had a cup of coffee, too, didn't he? Yeah, he had a couple cups of coffee with uh, the Rangers, yeah, Blue Jays. I mean, he he, he lived it, man, which is which is awesome. But, and no offense, I'm, you know, I'm saying this, but in today, Mike would be... Hosscat would be the one on the outs because they would take the other kid yeah. and figure out how to make that repeatable. Yep. And it wouldn't, they yep. wouldn't view it yep. as a project. They'd be like, look, yep. we now have the technology to figure out how to make this repeatable and, and download this on this kid to where, mm-hmm. here you go, there's the fast track. You can't teach. Mm-hmm. They try. I think, you know, we talked about this last time with driveline and everything, and then we can go to the NBA final stuff, but they try to install it and download it on people. But like you said last time, you're talking about our, your physics teacher back at HF, like, biomechanics and all that some people just can't do it but it's bottom line is what you're seeing in college baseball now it is so exciting and so unprecedented that again i have no i have zero faith in the ncaa promoting it and making it cool and getting it out there they're going to lean on just the storylines but i mean it is as good as it gets right now yeah a part of it too as well right is i think for and and kind of the the tough part about it with what's happened, which I it's tough to fault MLB because I understand where they're coming from as far as like wanting to consolidate the minors and try to make it a little bit and have it a little bit more under their jurisdiction. I can understand where they're coming from with that, and it seems like it's kind of moving in a positive direction where players are now minor league players are having a little bit more autonomy and as far as like getting housing and, and, and additional amenities that they need still not anywhere near enough but at least that's moving towards that direction but the one thing that i think about in relation to all of the the minor league teams unfortunately that got the axe was all of those towns right that that benefited right. from having that team and so that's what i think from the college baseball perspective is like and granted we're still seeing a lot of the same blue bloods that are coming into it like the texas's the oklahomas where you know the rich get richer but Still, like you think of the ECUs, you think of the Coastal Carolinas, like you think of like all these other programs that are now developing and, and bringing along really good quality programs with now, like they're not just really good teams, but they have really good talent on these teams too as well. They can make really cool stories. That's something that the community can tie in, can feel a part of in the same way like the minor league baseball um, teams w- would be able to do in their town. So yeah, I think that part is really, really cool, really encouraging for college baseball. 
Um, no doubt about it, our future kids have their work cut out for them to even halfway replicate what we did because in order, it seems like, to play at the levels we played at, they're going to have to be 10 times the players we were. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be pretty cool for us, though, if it continues at this rate because then we can turn on the TV and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I play, yeah, that's how it was when I played. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, literally. Yeah, no, literally, it was the same exact way. Yeah. It was actually better. It was better than what you're seeing now, actually. Let me tell you, in, in my training, we had to walk uphill 20 miles both ways. Right. So, you know, it's you, you don't even know what you're – you don't even know what, what you have to deal with. He's only throwing 100? Man, I saw 105. I hit me I, off the Adam's apple. Like, that's nothing. This, <laughs> this is uh, – but let's What's do – I got a perfect segue for you. It's like the old uh, Brian Scalabrini, right? After he won the title, he said, in a year, I'll tell my kids I want to, I'm want i an NBA champion. In five years, I'm going to tell them that I, I started all games. Yep. In like 10 years, I'm going to tell them that I was the finals MVP. Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hey, it's a fish story. Same energy. It is same, same energy. energy. I love it. So, yeah, that's a perfect segue. So, um, full disclosure, I've watched two halves of the NBA finals um, just the way work and everything's been going on competing interests, as you know. So what are your thoughts? What's going on? What's uh, is golden state going to be able to pull this is, thing out or what? It's been a fascinating series because I feel like more than anything, Boston keeps shooting itself in the foot. Boston is by far clearly the supremely more supremely talented team. Like that was shown honestly last game where in game because what are we about we're about to go into game six and beware game six clay is looming and looming clay has not really had a particularly good series so like all indicators are pointing that he could potentially explode in game six so uh beware of that but it was game four when curry had his incredible game where he literally put the team on his back to even the series up to two um and after that game, Ime Udoku came out and talked about like, yeah, you know, we, we've got to switch our strategy a little bit, basically saying like, no, we we need to basically give him like the Kevin Durant treatment. We need to give him like we, we need to get up in him. And you saw that a lot in game five, like they were in his shirt. And there was there was a couple of looks that Curry had that you, I thought he could have pulled the trigger on, but he seemed a little gun shy, right? Just trying to move in the flow of the offense, not trying to do too much. A couple once he launched, um, just trying to get something going, but couldn't really get quite that rhythm going. And for the first time, I think this was like the first time in like a, an absurd amount of games, like that he did not make a single three pointer in the yeah. game, and Boston still lost. Like that to me right now, it's funny. I I saw a tweet that talked about uh, uh, they said that they wish that NBA on TNT was covering this finals because they would love to hear Charles Barkley talk about Tatum Tatum and and Brown as as Robin and Robin right now. (laughs) He would have dragged their ass. (laughs) Just slandering them. But it's true, though, because it's like, yo, like, God, you can't get a better opportunity than a Steph Curry, like, overnight from behind the arc. And you let – like, granted, don't get me wrong, and I don't mean this is any type of slanderous way before I say this, but, like, you let Andrew Wiggins come out and have a fucking game against you guys. Like, that to me was like, all right, yeah, it's 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 going to take a hell of a game. Luckily, right, they're going to be back in the garden game game six. Um, that to me is right now in this playoffs, like, I've, I've gotten a chance to watch a good majority of the NBA playoffs. I've been pretty locked into it. Um, I think the Boston Garden is by far the hardest place to play. Oh, 100%. I think you're mixing in not just like the lore and the and the and the history of what you know that that stadium is all about, but like those fans are fucking ruthless. Well, hold on, like, they're arrogant, uh, harder they're than assholes. Utah. 
Yeah, harder than Utah. Okay. You, I mean, because yeah, the teams aren't like, comparable yeah. either, but yeah, it's the, still yeah, tough. It's, it's, it's the team, and that's the team aspect too that that gets factored into it. Environment. If we're just talking about environment alone, if you put both teams equal, yeah, I, I'll give you Utah too as well. Utah will be a very tough place to play. Um, ironically enough. Oklahoma City, remember back in its heyday, I thought that was an impossible place to win. And that so, was like, hostile, kudos, yeah. Kudos to the fan. Yeah, that place was a tough, tough place to play. Um, but right now, Boston, like that is, like they're like they're they're just relentless. Like there are stories I think in the Athletic I was reading about where they're saying like Golden State staffers or are just like out at lunch when they're out in Boston for the series and having to take their shirt off because people keep walking by them and cursing them out and telling them fuck you and telling them like saying all this nasty stuff. And like, Jesus. Yeah. That also like just checks out. Cause Boston is like a mean city. It is a very, very, and like this, that's the thing I'll give Boston. Like they get the rap right for being a racist city and, and like having like all that stuff that goes along with it. And yeah, a lot of that is probably pretty true and pretty on point, but also, Boston hates white people just as much too. Like they just hate everyone. They're just mean, terrible pricks, mass like, holes. Granted, I get it. Yeah, like and and I get it, right? Because it's gray and cold and groggy, and it's not really that you know pretty of a city. I guess I'm out here slandering Boston. I've never been there, so you know, let me reserve at least some slander for at least for me to go and visit that place at least one time in my life. But yeah, basically, the point being like. It's going to be a really, really tough place for them to play. Like they're going to hear it mercilessly. Like they're going to be all over Steph. They're going to be right. all over Draymond. They're going to be all over Clay. Um, but I think if the if the Warriors can come out and somehow, some way, eke out a win in Game Six and, and secure this title, honestly, it kind of it, it kind of lessens twenty sixteen a little bit. Blowing through, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think you're on par with with Boston and and obviously having to go there and play. And I think the word or the term mass hole exists for a reason. And obviously that's, <laughs> that's a big part of it too. And um, that's going to be tough. Just huge, huge mass holes. Yeah. But the two, the two things that I, I think I'll take away from what I've watched. And like I said, I've watched a game's worth. If you put the two halves together and obviously highlights and everything else, but the two things I'll say is, and this is my personal opinion is that, I think Jason Tatum is absolutely elite. I think he, what he, the steps he took end of last year and this year, I mean, I think he's, you can put him on a mantle. I mean, I think he's as advertised legit, but yeah. he's not ready for this. He's just, you know, he, I don't think he's, I don't think he's ready yet. I think that yeah. he will be. I think he's going to get there. I don't think he's going to be someone who, is going to look to go elsewhere because he feels like he needs more help. I think he can do it. Yeah. I think now yeah. this, the, the lights are a little bright for him because he's not had a great series. Um, yeah. But you, you, go ahead. You know what's really cool, though, about about this, though? Because – and this is something, too, that um, – honestly, I think The Last Dance kind of brought this out a little bit because a lot of people were talking about the days of the team – getting over the hump are dead. Now it's just all about these super teams that come come together, these superstars that are going off to go find greener pastures and find themselves a way to win a championship, which again, no knock, but that's just, you know, that's just how today's NBA is. It's kind of reverting back a little bit to where it like is. we're kind of seeing Boston going through the ringer a little bit. Like they've had that's the one thing that's kind of underrated about this Boston team. And I just strictly like the 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 roster that they have constructed. They've gone through the ringer. Like they, they, they bat like Tatum. It's it's easy to forget, but Tatum in his rookie year went up against those 
really took like took LeBron to a game seven in his rookie year. Like he stared down the barrel and like even this own postseason, staring down the barrel of, you know, a Giannis, a KD. Um now is Steph, you know, like uh, the Miami Heat and all the culture that comes along with it. Like that is like a pretty tried and true battle tested team. But again, like this is a different environment. This yeah. is a different animal. And honestly, like I think it's actually a little bit cooler if he can if, if they don't win this year, let Golden State have this like Golden State have this kind of this 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 triumphant return back. Right. Because I think one thing that we're seeing, quite honestly, with this Golden State team yeah, they're on their last legs. Draymond ain't nowhere near what he was. Clay, unfortunately, like he missed over a thousand days, right? Yeah. There's just no way he can ever be the same. Like he'll still be a good quality player, but ain't no way he's going to be the same. And even Steph, Steph's getting a little bit old because it's tough, right? It's a long, we talked about earlier about the college baseball season, NBA too. Like it's a long, long NBA season. And so like, I think that that time and that team is starting to come to an end barring like a complete resurgence from Jordan Poole Andrew Wiggins and they can kind of take the mantle from them but even so like I think that for this Boston team this is an important step I think Emo Odoku is the absolute perfect coach for them Um, and honestly I don't think it's the worst thing in the world if they because right they're gonna like this is just gonna be another notch in the belt and like that team coming into next year regardless of what happens they win a chip or not like coming into next year that Boston team is gonna be dangerous oh yeah so good like 100 like brooklyn who cares philly who cares like miami milwaukee like all really top-notch top of the eastern conference teams right there that like have viable chances to win i'm still gonna take boston yeah no i'm right there with you i wish our bulls would enter the chat a little more but you know it's they're a ways away obviously but yeah they're they're gonna be a really cool three four seed maybe next year again um Maybe win a first round matchup, but yeah, as soon as they play against a Milwaukee or uh, Philly, uh, and maybe not Philly, we'll we'll see what happens with Philly here. If I'm Joel Embiid, I'm trying to find a one way ticket out of that hellhole. Yeah, I think so um, too. Or or Boston, like, yeah, man, they they ain't matching up against they ain't matching up against with those teams. I mean, I don't even if Zach comes back, like it's, it's tough. Know, which also that that's interesting right now, kind of seeing what that's going on. Oh, I didn't want to think about it yet. <laughs> but I will uh, I will leave with this too. My other comment, uh, not negative Tatum related, but I mentioned this to you all. I think a little bit earlier too. Like to me, I'm very, very, very. I've never. I'm not an Andrew Wiggins fan, but I'm very happy yeah. for Andrew Wiggins because yeah. he's number one player coming out. He goes number one overall. He's got the Kansas blue blood stamp of approval on him bill mm-hmm. self stick is this is what he does he pumps these guys out he's gonna be a lottery guy mm-hmm. he's a number one overall mm-hmm. pick the mm-hmm. he had everything and he still does have everything the only thing that he did not have was that i don't think he was comfortable being the number one guy he didn't he wasn't yeah. comfortable being yeah. the guy so at that yeah. point in time they put him in a box Timberwolves mm-hmm. drafted him and he didn't perform no, in that box sorry the Cavs drafted him and, and they traded him in that Kevin Love deal. Right. He was put in a box so early yeah. that yeah. everybody gave up on him. And the Warriors, yeah. like surgeons, like if they're not already good enough at everything they do, they make the great front office move. And they're like, you know what? We'll take him. And we got to give up D. Russ. Like, okay, that's fine. Go ahead. Take him. And now you put him in this yeah. system where he's not the number one guy. 
And look, and yeah. look what he's been able to do. It's like your comment about yeah. you're letting Andrew Wiggins bust y'all when Steph's having an off night. It's like that's the beauty of Andrew Wiggins' game right yeah. there, and that's how he always has been. Like, what's wrong with exactly. that? You know what I mean? Like, to me, yeah. that's worthy of a number one overall pick if you can do that at the highest level and play like you are. I mean, that's I'm happy for him. He's finally found his fit. I feel like, or how to be one how to be used. I, will, I guess. Yeah, one thing I will push back on just a little bit. He was a number one overall pick. Number one overall picks can't be four or five option. They got to be number one option. So I, I, and I agree with you. Like, sure. I think this is what he always needed. It's just, that's the unfortunate. And that that's, that's just the burden you have to bear when you're the number one overall pick. Same thing. Like with our good friend, Anthony Bennett. I don't even know if that was his name. I know his last name was Bennett, yeah. but when you're drafted number one overall, Kwame Brown, like you gotta be, number one option and that's a really tough burden about being a number one overall pick because half the time that's not necessarily what how your career is going to pan out that's and that's a really unfair and difficult expectation to place on you because if you turn into an Andrew Wiggins on a team especially like environment because that's the other part too right it's like you put him honestly on Golden State if it's somehow some way in some magical force field right like we're talking like um, when the Lakers were able to draft James Worthy um, way back when, like just the right time, right circumstance, you get a dynastic team that's able to draft that type of talent. Oh, yeah. We're probably talking about his career in a completely different way, because now if you can just ingratiate him into this championship culture, then yeah, it's great. But you you throw him in a decrepit Minnesota that ain't once they ain't won nothing since KG was there. And yeah. even KG he himself had to, had to go to Boston to go win a title. Like Minnesota, unfortunately, kind of the land where your career goes to die. Although we'll see what Anthony Edwards does because I that kid is he is tremendous. But that's a that's a side point. Um, and yeah, he was he was expected to go, and even with the addition of Cat, right? And that's the thing too, like. It wasn't until Jimmy got there, brought some alpha into that locker room, and of course all of that crumbled because Cat's soft and Cat was the was the leader of the team. And, and Wiggins is just like, look, man, like I, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna do my job, I'm gonna come here and I'm gonna hoop. Like I don't care about any of this other like bullshit out right. there. But he just needed to be in the right environment. But that's the tough part when you're the number one overall pick, man. You got to be that dog. You got to be Jimmy Butler. You know, you got to be Anthony. Da- mm, nah, street clothes. Let me, let me not go there. You got to be LeBron James. You know, you you got to be worthy of g- going in whatever franchise drafts you and t- and taking that burden and putting it on and putting it putting the weight of that on your shoulders and being able to to handle that. And you know. Unfortunately, he didn't, but it, it's really awesome for him because the way that his career is trending now, right, he's found a really solid home in Golden State. I think we're going to talk about him completely differently in his career after this rehabilitation that he's going through at Golden State because at the time, too, there was a lot of pundits that were saying, oh, this is the worst trade ever. The, this is it for the Warriors. What are they doing? Why are they bringing him in? Yeah. And he shut all of them up. Right. Every yeah. single one. I like it. I like it. And I mean – there's been a lot worse number one picks out there, like you said. I'm pretty sure K- oh, yeah. pretty sure KG played. Wasn't Michael Olawakandi a number one overall pick? And I'm pretty sure, yeah. And That's KG had him up there fighting battles by himself in Minnesota. And you got Andrew Bogut's and Marvin Williams of the world who are just uh, role guys. You know what I mean? So Andrew Bogut, yes, yes. Yeah, but, but regardless, again, similar guy. 
similar guy when you know was was expected to be the man in Milwaukee whatever they put up a couple of good seasons then goes over to Golden State's Nance and he was like their vet on the on those early early dynastic teams and he made a contribution won a couple titles and now he's off in Australia doing Australian things so good for yes, Andrew Bogut yes. shout out to him see i mean it, Golden State they're like surgeons with that front office man it's they crazy are, man. But they are. They rehabilitate. They rehabilitate. Rehabilitate. Shit, man. We have, we've been talking too long. <laughs> rehab. They rehab. All right. Rehab. There we go. All right. I'm going to give you the option here. All right. You want to go into some of this mental health and NCAA stuff? You want to skip it? We'll save it. And you get straight to these sports conspiracies. Yeah, let's save the mental health. Okay, let's let's give that let, let's give that some room to breathe because I think that would be that's a really good discussion and I I do want to get into that. Yeah, I think that both of us can offer a really good and strong, unique perspective. But no, let's uh, let's jump into these sports conspiracies. All right. So I told you on the last episode when you were going on your MLS, uh, which did you see what just happened? Apple TV made a, a big, they made a yeah. move. <laughs> So Apple TV, I, I mean, that's I mean that's unprecedented. I mean, I will give them that. That is a hell of a move in the fact that you're going to be able to stream every team. That it's what they needed, and the MLS needed that. It's huge. It is huge. huge. Now they just need it's huge for both parties. They need your magic yeah. and Larry, and yeah, my magic and Larry, and yeah, look at it. Because that's the thing. Like, I honestly, I check out a couple like crew games. I check out an Austin FC game. You know, like I put it on in the background, but. I like, wore my Austin, S- Austin FC hat for you. I didn't even say anything. Ah, yeah, dang! Look at that. That look, man. Look how look how good it looks. Sorry, the camera is a little bit blurry, so it just looks like a black and green patch. Oh, but no, yeah, no, good. it looks good. Yeah, I got my scarf back there too, as well. Oh shit! I see it up there. It's covering yeah, beer, probably. <laughs> All right, still sports conspiracies. Okay, what's here? I teased this one last time. I. By no way do I believe this is true at all, but it's floating around out there. So I'm going to tell you the whole Jimmy Butler conspiracy theory that MJ is his dad. You can laugh that one off. It's it's out there, though, and it's floating around. And then I'll get you into my favorite all-time conspiracy. So Let me hear it. So stick with me here. So Jimmy Butler, okay, born in September of 1989, raised in Texas by his mother, Lana Butler, until he was kicked out at the age of 13. His mm-hmm. mother threw him out. Because she did not like the way that he looked. Okay. We know Jimmy's story. We know he faxed his LOI in from a McDonald's uh, in his town. He's sleeping in a handicapped stall at a McDonald's. He was homeless. He crashed on people's couches. He finally got taken in by one of his good friends and the Lambert family. Michelle was the mom's name. He went through all that, became a star. The rest is history, right? So where the stories intertwine and they get a little sticky is that in this rumor, and I looked it up, and I still don't believe this, but this rumor has been floating around for a long time, that in 1988, MJ stepped outside his marriage and got a woman pregnant in Texas. Okay? Okay. Okay. MJ supported this young lady with child support payments up until the son was 13. The payment stopped when the child turned 18 and the mother let the kid go because she didn't have the means to raise him anymore. Support the kid. 
Exactly. So, all that in mind, and that timeline, which again, the Jimmy Butler timeline, that is accurate. The MJ timeline is rumor, has been rumor for a while about the child in Texas. Couple that with, they kind of look alike. It's not that much of a reach. They kind of look alike. And he got that dog in him. And he does. And to me, the the spirit that Jimmy Butler plays with, the zest that he has off the court, he is, you know, I mean, I could see that being the sire of MJ. Do I believe any of this? No. Is it fun to listen to? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Because, I mean, it's like, damn, if that timeline actually matches up that way and it's like, MJ, like, what are you doing, man? Like, you're, you, I know you, we talked about it last time. You had two kids that are probably doing good things now, but you had one that's a dog and is an actual hooper, like, legit. So, whatever. The only thing I think, well, not the only thing, right? There's a bunch of things I can debunk it, but I think the main thing that debunks it, in my own personal view, because his two kids were, one was our age and then one was younger, right? Yeah, so in, so in 88, he would have been like, what was he? He was drafted like 84, 83, 84. 84, 84, 85. One of the yeah, two. he would have been fresh out of college, whatever. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So the, the only thing I think about, and <laughs> you'll follow me on this. When is it ever that the eldest child is the best athlete? That's just, never how it works. You it's, just debunked the whole thing with actual <laughs> science because that is a proven fact. And you just debunked the whole thing. Literally, from our home, whenever is the eldest child the most athletic? Never. never happens. It never happens. Never happens. No, I uh-uh. haven't seen it. Dang. So, debunked. I love it. I love it. I want it to be true. I would want to will it to be true. But, like, I just think of that and, like, you know, we know someone too as well, right? Like, the, the ultimate case study. Yeah, no, it, it's it's always the youngest child. It always or is. At least, the, at least the middle child. At least the middle child. It's, ne- it's never the oldest. The oldest is yeah. like, the, they, they said it. They like try their hardest, but yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. never that. And see, that's, that's, I'm with you, though. that's the fun thing about conspiracy theories, especially with like sports stuff, because you want it to be true and it adds that storyline where it's not just the game and things like that. And, you know, that's, I think we just debunked one here on the podcast live, which is awesome. So shout out to us for debunking that with actual science. <laughs> Prove it, you know, you take any family and it's going to be right. So there's that. But here's my all-time favorite sports conspiracy theory. And it's probably not going to be what you think. But the only reason it is my absolute favorite is because outside of sports, my favorite conspiracy theory is that Mattress Firm is the biggest money laundering scheme in america (laughs) right now okay i mean you you can go to a lot of big metropolitan areas and you see a mattress firm across the street from a mattress firm both parking lots are empty i don't know anybody who's ever bought a mattress from mattress firm correct neither do you the old mafia thing about mattress money they're doing it right in front of our face it's a money laundering scheme i literally used to live right like literally downtown chicago right off state street and right on the corner there there was a jewel osco and then there was a mattress firm that was no one was ever in there no one i maybe saw a maximum of like three people in there during the year and a half that i lived there so yeah no i'm right there with you i'm I'm on board with that but what's what's your biggest so what's in parallel to that parallel to that is is that the Miami Marlins are the mattress firm of the MLB. Okay? Okay. 
<laughs> yep. All right. Okay. Now bear with me. I'm going to read some facts right. here to you, and we're going to get to the bottom okay. of it, and you tell me what you think. And there's also a special appearance by the one and only Marlins man in my research to ah, back this up. Okay. 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 Yeah. Good old Marlins man. Yes, yes, yes. All right. British Virgin Islands. You got to stick with me on this, but I'm going to wrap it all up nice and tight here at the end. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I think I'm following you here initially, okay. but yeah. Keep, keep British Virgin, British Virgin Islands. Okay. They are, a t- mm-hmm. it's a tax haven. We all know that a lot of gambling yep. sites, casinos, offshore, all that. That's where they operate. Cause it's a tax haven. Okay. Back in 2018, when the Marlins sold their franchise, before they sold, their owner tried to claim British citizenship in attempt to avoid all the taxes. Now, you may ask, why would he do that? The Miami Marlins were dirt cheap to begin with. Well, here's why. Mm-hmm. Miami-Dade County ended up suing him. His name's Jeffrey Loria for his agreed-upon share of the profits from the sale of the team. But Loria had attempted to avoid paying out because he actually claimed that he lost $140 million on the sale, when in reality, he originally had bought the team for $159 million and sold it for $1.2 billion. So the creative, the creative on-paper accounting that took place because he was in the process of doing this British citizenship so he could get out of the taxes, right? Yep. Miami-Dade named... Derek Jeter in his ownership group claiming that the Jeter group was contractually responsible to cover any disputes over Loria's accounting. Okay. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Jeter group tried to play it through court and say, you know, this is just a novel way of trying to get around things, yada, yada, yada. But taking a step further, and this is where you're going to have to stick with me. The Marlins, Miami Marlins, that's the product and the company you see on the field. The Miami Marlins yep. are made up of a bunch of shell companies, okay? Yep. So the first shell company is called Abernew LTD, which is one corporation of many that owns a piece of, not the Marlins, the, Marlins. the, Mar- no, the Marlins, Marlins Holdings LLC, okay? Uh, you got me? So you got Miami Marlins, okay. Okay. you have Abernew, yep. then you have Marlins yep. Holding LLC, Okay. Yep. Marlins Holding LLC is established in the British Virgin Islands. Yep. Stick with me. Marlins Holdings LLC owns Marlins Funding. Okay. Marlins Funding owns Marlins Team Co. You still with me? Marlins Team Co. is the newest shell company that was formed in 2018 by Derek Jeter and majority owner Bruce Sherman and the other partners in order to purchase the team from Loria. Where is that country? Where is that uh, company located at? The British Virgin Islands. So, creative. They got, a, they got a nesting doll of companies, don't they? <laughs> they do. It's one shell company after another to hide the money to back to the Virgin Islands so they get the tax break. Yep. So when he reported what he lost... On paper, it was right because everything funnels down to this tax haven, okay? But this is where the case got blown open, and shout out to our man, Marlins Man, okay? Marlins Man, for those of you that don't know, is the guy that wears all orange and sits behind the TV on every big game. He's been to the Derby. He's been to the Masters. He, come, he used to start all the Marlins games. 
Eugene Levy, I think, is his name. There you go. Yeah, he's a lawyer, some sort of lawyer that does some sort of corporate law where he's never in court. Everything yeah. settles out. He goes to all these events, whatever. Okay. Lawrence Levy. There you go. So Marlon's man took it upon himself to stop in the Virgin Islands, okay, and went to the address, okay, of the company. He tweeted a picture of the address and the building. And here's his tweet. I'll read it to you. And I quote, there's nobody here. It's just a drop box. It's a rack of mailboxes. It's called letterbox rental. This sucks. So it all ended with a federal judge saying that the ownership and everything's in the wrong. They can't do this. They can't claim because they have all these shell companies in the British Virgin Islands that the Marlins themselves have citizenship. Therefore, the owner had to pay. Jeter got involved. He's since out and everything. But my conspiracy is, is that for years they've been operating this way and they've never spent money on players like Stanton, Real Muto, Ozuna, Yelich, because they're laundering money through all these shell companies, not paying taxes. These ownership groups are huge. DJ, Derek Jeter got involved. It's a money laundering scheme. It's Ozark. It, it's it's what it is. Uh, I love it, first and foremost. Um, I do because I listen to um, Nothing Personal with David Sampson, who's yeah. the former uh, president of the Marlins. Uh, he's talked about this, and I can't remember this, the specific episode where he talked about this. But a lot of that checks out. And there's there was put it this way, there was definitely some funny business. I don't know if it was exactly Monday money laundering. There was definitely a lot of funny business that was going on pre Jeter Sherman Group when they came in and bought that because now it's you know, with Jeter on the outs outs. Um, now it's just the Bruce Sherman Group. But and even now I'm wondering like what because that that was I, I I do remember them talking about that and I think I remember that tweet from our good friend Marlins man talking about actually going out there which I just remember just thinking like must be nice to be rich man just be just be like hey let me go check this exactly. out real quick and see if this is legit and he gets it and it's like nah <laughs> this ain't legit like at all like this i'm just looking at a pile of mailboxes like they don't represent nothing so like what what are we doing here what is this it's called letterbox rental this sucks he was broken hearted poor marlin's man he found out that his team was literally taking part in some nefarious activity and he was coming to grips with the fact they were the mattress firm of the MLB. Didn't he at that point come out? Did he come out at that point and say too, like he was going to go like his team, his team, his team fandom was like up in um, for free agency at that point. (laughs) He was done. He was done with the Marlins and I can't blame him. I mean, how are they making money? How did he sell it for 1.9 billion when he bought it for a hundred some odd million when they stink and they don't, get people to games telling you i was gonna say i i can't believe he even at that like if that's what drove him over the cliff of not being a marlins fan not the sell-off of 2012 or the sell-off of 04 or the sell-off uh, name any sell-off you can think of but come on man marlins man yeah. loves the camera that was the perfect spot for him to always <laughs> be in front of the camera so yeah. all right that is true you have a little bit of controversy yeah that, that is the absolute perfect spot yeah so what do you got what's your favorite sports conspiracy of all time whether My you believe it or not my favorite sports conspiracy is not even it's 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 very recent so it's a little bit of recency bias i will admit um but i just think it's fascinating because no one's really talking about it or or saying anything about it but this whole story of tom brady 
supposedly supposed to go to the Miami Dolphins and court again, a Miami thing supposed to go to the Miami Dolphins and quarterback for them. And Sean Payton, you know, supposed to be getting like $20 million a year to become the head coach and them just having this whole coup. And then for Brady, then from there, then to have ownership and then eventually become the owner of the Miami Dolphins all blown up by Brian Flores. And no one's like talking about it. Like, no, like Schefter's not like Schefter's like had like one tweet about it. It's been reported by Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk. And then um, one of the local Miami reporters down there, too, as well. I think he's talked about it a little bit in the Levitard show. They they've jumped on on board on it, too, as well. But, yeah, the more it is like the main the mainstream media, like no one's like talking about like how massive that could have been and how basically like. Tom Brady's whole retirement was all like super fake. Like it's funny because now you look back on it and they brought up this really good point today on the show. Like, so Tom Brady's retirement post, if you look at it, right. Cause everyone in Boston was pissed off. Cause they're like, you didn't thank us. Like you have this glorious career where we, we made you again, mass holes. Like, like how could you not like give us any type of recognition? And it's because he was only saying goodbye and thank you to Tampa because his ass was on his way to Miami until Flores was like, nah, man, I'm calling racism. (laughs) Blew everything up. Blew everything up. So now Tom Brady's got to go sulk back down to Tampa Bay. You know, Sean Payton is just going to be on the sideline here for the year and not have a job. And it's just wild that, like, I think that's just such a massive story and no one's really talking about it. Bro, what is going on in Miami? It's that's a that's a wild wild place. There's a, a the filmmaker Billy Corbin, who yeah. um, made you and and a, and a bunch of other really awesome right. documentaries. He says all the time. He said the the Miami of today is the is the America of tomorrow, and it's so funny because like you think about like just kind of going and we go down a quick rabbit hole of like all the Miami stuff. You look at the election of 2000 with Al Gore and how that basically literally came down to Miami Dade County, basically deciding the election and all the foo-foo business and funny business that went down to it. Of course, like then now sending us down like this, like the butterfly effect of that is crazy. Like what happens if Al Gore is president versus George Bush and how that just completely swung it in in one way over over another. They talk about the housing market and how that um, all of that stuff really started to crash and, and, and started to come to light in like 07, all, all, all down in where in Florida. And I think specifically down in Miami is really where a lot of that was coming out into the, coming out into the light. So yeah, Miami in general is just a whole, like one of the more fascinating, if I could plug another podcast, the Levitard show on Friday, they do a segment with Billy Corbin called because Miami. And they, they talk about basically all the corrupt and, fucked up shit that goes down goes down there in miami and how there's like a whole bunch of stuff like the whole like f1 race that just happened basically right. the owner there um steven ross just racking up fines left and right because he's doing all this all this stuff that goes against like the environmental code um and is absolutely like pillaging that area but you know no one cares because it's miami and it's all and it's all for the almighty dollar and and what we can do to try to bring this glorious glamorous race down to miami and and they were trying to build a marina into it but then of course that that failed and turned into a big joke but then at the end of the day he ends up winning because instead because the joke actually turned into a pretty cool little prop and everyone's like talking about it and even now here we are talking about it so yeah miami is just a whole it's a whole fuck shit of an area but it is fascinating because yeah honestly you kind of see what kind of goes on down there and it 
kind of tells the story of kind of where we're going and where we're headed down. So when we're talking about conspiracy theories, I think a lot of that is just kind of we can we could do a whole side episode one day about because I think one of the more fascinating things is he did a documentary called 534 Votes that talks about that election. It yeah. goes in detail about like basically how that whole election started and stemmed from um, the whole Elian Gonzalez uh, right. situation that happened back in like 99. Mm-hmm. And like that is like wild just to see the butterfly effect of literally one kid coming over on a raft from Cuba, his mother or father, I can't remember one of his parents dying. I think it was his mother dying and half of America's like, send him back, send him back to Cuba, let him go back to his, like his, his biological dad. Right. Like, why are we keeping him here? And all the Cubans down there. And this is what kind of defected them to the Republican party, because at that point they're all like, no, do not send him back to that, to that state. Like to cute, like his mom literally died trying to get him here for freedom. And you want to send him back. And like the Republicans got jumped, jumped on board on that. And like, yes. Yeah, so the whole, like that whole butterfly effect of how that happened, is incredibly fascinating um but yeah that's a whole side politic tangent that we can touch on on a different time but yeah that's the whole um tom brady piece like that to me right now is i just can't believe that no one's really like he he's just gonna start this year for the tampa bay buccaneers yes with the new coach and how he got arians out of there too as well which he's trying to play nice about but it's like no nah, he was like all right i'll come back but like that i ain't i'm not playing for him yeah, yeah i'm done with him that um, one is fascinating, and, and I'm am surprised that you have not heard more about it. But shout out Brian Flores, man! Like that dude worked his tail off for Belichick. He did to get to where he's at, and he did. He could have, he could have kept his mouth shut and not called yeah. bullshit on any of this because he finally got to where he wanted to go, be a NFL head coach. So, but he didn't, and now yeah. look what's happened. And you're not people aren't yeah. even talking about the right thing. They're talking about him, right? You know, and it's like, well, no, hold on. Like, you're all holy. Tom Brady is not exactly all holy as he has led on to believe here. You know, he's just as much of a fuckboy as anybody else. So to take this conspiracy theory one step further, and there's no validity to this, but still, I'm going to put it onto the ether because um, I I have heard this before on a podcast and it's been rumored, but it's it's just it's nothing more than circumstance. But um, they talked about how Bill Belichick caught wind of this Tom Brady and Sean Payton potential power move and heard about it. Cause NFL circles are small, right? Especially as former quarterback. Yeah. It's easy to find out. So because of that, and I think the, the way the timeline works out, it kind of checks out based on everything that kind of lined up. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> they're saying that Bill Belichick intent. Cause right. The one thing that kind of set off, that was the hair trigger on, on the whole thing blowing up was Bill Belichick texting Brian Flores and saying, congratulations. I heard about the job and Brian Flores being like, yeah, no, thanks. And then he was like, wait, that's fishy. I haven't interviewed for it yet. And then Bill basically admitting like, Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I meant to text Brian Dable wrong, Brian. Yeah. And that basically like setting Flores off and, and butterfly flack to like all the, all the shit now taking off, including the lawsuit. The conspiracy is that Brian, that Bill Belichick did that on purpose because he heard about Tom Brady and Sean and Sean Payton going to Miami, interdivision rival, and knew that Brian Flores was in the role of hunt of, of looking to um, get the job with the Giants, and just somehow just that oh, what if I just so happen just to let this slip about you being overlooked here, and sent that text to him. Uh. 
course, Brian Flores then goes and, you know, and, and gets the text and that all happens. And then you see the domino effect of the lawsuit and what happens. I'm like, man, if that somehow, if that had any semblance of truth to it, that's the most diabolical 3D chess Bill Belichick has ever done in his life. More than, more than Spygate, more than like any of the other, more than Deflategate, more than anything else. If like that had any semblance of truth that he caught wind and just said that and just like, let me just see what happens if I, man, honestly, I wouldn't be mad at homie. <laughs> <laughs> he's the puppet master bro he is the like, puppet master like he's just point. pulling the strings man and it's like like you you said yeah. he's playing he's not even play, he doesn't even have to play 5d chess he's no. playing chess everybody else is still no. playing checkers man like he is playing it like little nas x plays the internet like a fiddle bill belichick is yep. playing the nfl like an absolute fiddle if that's true and you know what i mean he saw hats tom, off to him he saw tom brady have a modicum of success and go down to Tampa, win a Super Bowl, and said, I'm about to blow all your shit up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bill Belichick said, here, hold my beer, Boston. You think you made him? I made him, yeah. and I'm about said, to blow the shit up. He said, yo, like, you can have that career and everything. Like, yo, yeah, greatest of all time quarterback. That's fantastic. But, like, you going to be an owner in this league? And, like, try to – no, 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 no. You going to – you gonna go to a broadcast booth, gonna make your millions in there, and you're gonna be happy there. You're not stepping into this ownership box. Hell not no. I have anything to no, he was gonna, he was trying to Jason Witten him. He's trying to put him in the booth for a year. Oh He's my like, god. Well, you know what? And at the end of the day, though, Tom Brady is the one is the last one laughing because man, my man's got an absolute fat ass check from NBC and they never called a game in his life. Nope. So but let's bag that right uh, there, man. That was good. I think we covered some ground. I think we, uh, we covered a lot of ground, man. We made up for the long hiatus, like we said. We'll try and do this weekly, but obviously, yep, life, conflicting schedules, things like that. We'll uh, we will adjust as Listen, planned. Now that I got this thing here, and assuming my audio comes out a hell of a lot better than it did last time, this thing's coming on the road with me. So hey, even if I got to go travel, we got to do like an emergency podcast. Let's do it, man. We we we're we're getting down. We're getting this into a good rhythm. So let's let's do it. Hell yeah, absolutely. We're professionals now. I'm gonna send all this over to our producer here, and we'll get it all edited up, and we'll be good to go. But uh, good talking with you here, brother, as usual, and uh, catching up. And thanks y'all for listening. Yes, sir. Appreciate y'all. See y'all in the next one. Love y'all. Love you.